Radio. On this week's episode, we have Peter Simons on the show. Peter Simons is a frequent guest. We've had him on the show. He's a beer author talking about beer history. But one of the cool things about what Peter's got going on is he's got some really cool projects that he's doing. Working with Brewpilus, the iSpindle, and other different open source projects. So we're going to just kind of talk about his brewery, some beer history, and just have a little chat. This week on Homebrewing DIY. Welcome back to Homebrewing DIY, the podcast that takes on the do-it-yourself aspect of homebrewing. Gadgets, contraptions, and parts? This show covers it all. On this week's show, we're talking to Peter Simons. He's a beer author and beer historian who has found some amazing open source projects, and he's been just implementing them into his brewery. So we had him on the show. We're going to chat about those and a little bit of your history too. Always a great conversation with Peter and excited to have him on the show. But first, I'd like to thank all of our supporters over at Patreon. Head on over to patreon.com forward slash homebrewing DIY. And you can give it any amount. Your support helps the show. Uh, very, very excited to have all of our patreon supporters and it's great to be back and after i put out the last episode a couple weeks ago uh, we'll be a little more consistent as i get more guests roll it into the pipeline i've actually got two recordings this week so we should be back to back but uh yeah we'll we'll definitely have some more consistency as i get guests rolling in and being on the podcast and i want to thank Everyone who has stuck out through our hiatus and has still supported the show. So thank you so much for all of the support that you have given Homebrewing DIY. Another way to support the show is you can head on over to coffee.com forward slash homebrewing DIY. You can give one-time support. And of course, you can use any of our sponsor links on our website. That is homebrewingdiy.beer. Uh, working with Ryan Packmeyer guest on the show on our last episode, uh, just to get some of our episodes but not our episodes, but more of our blog posts up and ro rolling again. Had some really great articles specific to beer styles, what's in Chino's box, all kinds of stuff. So we're going to start working on getting all that stuff back. But yeah, good stuff happening here at Homebrewing DIY. It feels good to be back. Well, I guess uh, that's pretty much it for announcements. I don't really have a ton going on other than, you know, keep homebrewing. Do some big brew day that comes up. That's coming up on May 7th, right? Real quick, I have committed to brew a batch. It's been a while since I brewed a five-gallon batch. I'm, I'm doing mainly 1.5-gallon batches, so kind of excited to brew a bigger batch of beer. And so that will be out, and uh, maybe I'll take some pictures. Check us out on our social media at homebrewingdiy.beer. 
beer is our website and at homebrewing DIY is all of our social handles. All right, let's, let's dive into it. Let's hop into the show and listen to this week's interview with Peter Simons. I'd like to welcome Peter Simons to the show. Peter's a, a returning guest. He's actually been on the show before. He's a brewing historian, home brewer, and author. He wrote such books as Guile Brews. If you if you look at uh, the history in our show notes, uh, when he did write that book, he was he was on the show, kind of having a discussion with us about that. And now he's coming back on the show. He's been doing some cool DIY gadgets, and we're just going to have a little chat about some homebrewing gadgets. So welcome to the show, Peter. How are you doing? I'm good, thanks. Uh, hopefully you're well as well. Yeah, doing great. Glad to be back to making podcasts again and and excited to be talking to you again. So you reached out to me because you were like, hey, I've been messing around with all these gadgets and, and, and you know that this is something that I talk about quite often. And one of the the projects you mentioned that you've been using for the last five years is uh, Brew Pilus. And I, I'd love to talk about that because I've used a lot of different versions of Brew Pi, but I've never actually used Brew Pi less. So why don't you talk a bit about that project and, and how you've been using that in your brewery? Okay. Um, yeah, I, I started with Brew Pi less. And at that time, uh, I didn't know what this is about five years ago uh i had no idea what github was i'm still i'm still struggling with that but that's another story um the uh but what i i'd been using a uh, a very rudimentary uh fermentation control on my fridge uh which was basically you set a uh, it was an analog dial you set the dial to the temperature you wanted and it turned the fridge off uh, I, then I moved to a little bit uh, of an improvement where I had one where it would turn the heater on uh, with a heat belt. And although I'm in I'm in Australia, it you do get fluctuations in temperature between the day and the night, and that's enough to to upset your fermentation process. So then I I've always liked um, I played around with pick in the past and and I'd, I'd done a little bit of programming back in the dim dark ages you know basic programming and things like that uh and it it appealed to me the the idea of using brew pi less uh i do have a a pie uh that i had but there was a lot of messing around with um uh, having to set it up and headless and all sorts of other stuff. Whereas BrewPyless, a um, couple of control relays uh, and Vito Tai, whose project it is, uh, it, it gave a good uh, impression of uh, being something that had been written by somebody that knew about brewing. It had um, uh, all the BrewPy... I've never used brew pie, but the brew pie less had the same originally had the same type of screens, and it ran on a on an eight two double six. So all those things sort of intrigued me, and I I put one together, and uh, 
I controlled the brew with it, and I and he kept developing it, and gradually uh, uh, included eye spindle, uh, so that the uh, gravity uh, could be displayed, as well as the uh, basically the on and off temperatures uh, for the fermentation control, and. As he developed it, I went, oh, okay, I could probably make an ice spindle. Uh, it took me probably six months because the original ice spindle, uh, the, the design of it needed a 3D print and didn't have a 3D printer, didn't know anybody that had one, went online in Sydney and found somebody that would print you some 3D uh, I think they're called sleds. So I did that and arranged to meet this guy who I didn't know from a bar of soap uh, in the <laughs> centre of Sydney and uh, exchanged the brown paper bag that had the um, uh, had the 3D prints in them. So, yeah. Uh, and then uh, I used... Uh, uh, a board which had uh, all the soldered through holes and then you you um, uh, wire it up to suit. And I looked on uh, Dutch sites and uh, German sites that have made eye spindles and I got it to work. And it, it did good service until I probably lasted 12 months until we had this slight unfortunate leakage um, and so eye spindle number one is now my test eye spindle because it's it's died. It's terribly sad, but it's died. <laughs> so I, I built a second one with a different form of sled, which was much more solid. And by the way, I bought enough bits to make 10 of these because at the time, the uh, uh, getting it from overseas typically means China, or meant China then. Uh, and I thought, well, I'll, I'll get enough bits. And uh, I invested in some PCBs to go with the sled. And I have in my hand at the moment, eye spindle number two. Eye spindle number two is still going strong. Uh, so if you're careful and make sure the lid's on properly and don't get too excited with it. Um, it. It seems to last. And my other one, which is a, a much more modern interpretation, which does away with the uh, uh, having to do 3D printing, is the, uh, is the one that has the, um, uh, the PCB. And the PCB goes into a smaller uh, petling tube and uh, is a much more elegant design, basically. Uh, and uh, that one is in the brew at the moment and is has been working well. And I've got a couple that I've not yet constructed because I, I think it's handy to have a spare given there is a probability that it will leak at some stage through the cap. Uh, but it seems to have held up pretty well with the uh, uh, under-pressure fermentation. Uh, I haven't gone more than, say, 15 PSI, uh, and I've not noticed um, uh, any uh, adverse effects on the on the eye spindle itself. 
and Brood Pilots continues to um, to evolve. Uh, he's on uh, version four point two at the moment, and uh, he's not quite released that yet. And I've got uh, an ESP thirty two. Uh, with that running uh, in a test mode, uh, so yeah, the, as as things have developed, uh, the idea of pressure fermentation. I, I have fermented under pressure a couple of times using a um, uh, a kegland all rounder fermenter, and I tend now to use it more for spunding. So when I'm perhaps five points off terminal gravity, I'll uh, put the spunding valve on. And um, Brewpiles has had the facility to uh, monitor uh, the, the pressure and also a capping um, using a solenoid. Now, I have the solenoid. I've had it for 15 months, and I haven't quite got around to that yet. And I have to share with you, I had a bit of a disaster. The, <laughs> Welcome uh, to home the all, Yes, yeah. Uh, and I, I had not been drinking, um, but it, it is a relatively simple mistake to make. So on, on the top of the, uh, the all-rounder, there are, there are two posts. Uh, one is for getting liquid out, and one is for gas in. Now, if you actually, and I had it connected up to my um, transducer to monitor the pressure, and I did all my brew day, I set everything up, let it all pitch the yeast, did all that good stuff, and then that was it, done for the day, had a beer. Next morning, I go out to see how the fermentation's going, and the floor is sticky. <laughs> never I'm want going, that to happen ever no and I, and, no. I, and I opened the fridge and I oh, insert swearing here um, <laughs> I had connected the wrong one and the uh, and the uh, fermenting wort had pushed itself up right through the um, uh, the transducer and I have to say the transducer has not survived uh, I don't know whether it 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 didn't like the um, uh, the stickiness or whatever, but it, it simply no longer works. So I've um, I've ordered some replacement ones because that to me is a is an interesting feature to be able to monitor the pressure. Yeah, uh, I think that's yeah. uh, very very cool. Uh, let, let's let's talk about kind of your tech stack here, and really that's what we're talking about is a cool little tech stack. Right now, when you think about like your brew day, you're you're brewing electric right now, right? You you use an electric brewery. I do now, but that's not where I started. Um, uh, I used uh, propane gas for for many years, uh, and I'm I'm a um, I used to be a Herms brewer because I built my own Herms system. But I found um, I wasn't using it. Uh, I could do step mashes. I, I could do all sorts of good things. I could do double batches quite easily. But as I've got older, I don't tend to do that quite so much. So uh, 
Uh, I've built my own one vessel system and I I now use an Albrin's DSPR 320 uh, which controls both uh, the mash uh, and the and the boil and the the way I have it set it up you you, you can you can put in your own steps so I, for the mashing for example I I have all the standard steps that that I might want to use uh, and then I can because it's got the adjusting dial on the front you can uh, you can tweak it so you can put in your standard let's say your 65 degrees centigrade for your, your main mash whatever that is in F um, and uh, if you need to tweak it up a little bit then then you just push the button rotate it up push the button again and you're you're up at the next level it it's a very simple device to use and once you finish say mashing out it gets to the step there uh, and it'll automatically well if you program it that way it'll automatically move uh, into the boil mode so while you're you're draining off the uh, the last out of the uh, out of the uh, malt pipe uh, you can start coming to the boil and in the boil steps I've got it in such a way that all my favorite uh, hop addition times uh, are in there so I've got one at obviously at boil uh, 30 minutes 15 and I've got the uh, facility to uh, adjust the amount of uh, electricity going to the element uh, so it's quite easy to set it up to do a, uh, a whirlpool mash uh, uh, a hop stand and all those steps are programmed in I don't have to use them but each step generates uh, an alarm the way I've got it set up so it's it's a semi-automated system what I have noticed is that I I will hit my uh, targets uh, more often than not uh, in, because the uh, amount of evaporation is pretty constant because you're using the same routine time after time. So yeah. I think consistency is one of those things to make good beer is that as long as your system's dialed and you know exactly what it's going to do, right, you're going to be able to, I, I think, just, you know, talking to you over the years, you've you've definitely got a different, you make all different kinds of beer, right? Uh, from from British ales to, I know you you wrote a historical book on just the the, the Australian sparkling uh, ale, right? So, you're you when you were got your system super dialed, it gives you the flexibility to make these different styles, have different step routines, and know exactly how your your equipment's going to act. Is the, would you say that's the kind of situation you're in? Yeah, I I I, I think. Um you got all these different, uh, I, I guess you guys would call them levers, I'd call them a lever. Uh, there's, there's things that you can, or dials, you, there's dials that you can adjust. And, and when uh, I'm doing a recreation beer, and I've not done all the re recreation beers, quite a few of my mates have done, done some as well. Uh, what I want to be able to do is, it's usually playing with the ingredients rather than the process so if you actually 
have a relatively standardised process, both in on the hot side with the mashing and the boiling, and then with the fermentation, uh, you at least uh, have a, a level of certainty that the recreation recipe that you um, uh, publish is something that if somebody was to brew it on their system, which is bound to be different, all things being equal, it should be a drinkable beer. It may not be a beer to your taste. It it may not be think, something you will ever brew again, and I've done a few of those. Um, <laughs> but it, it's, it's sort of like experimental archaeological brewing sort of thing, if you know what I mean. It, yeah, I it, do, and I, I think that's awesome because – and I love that you've just kind of said it that way, where it's like, hey, as long as my process is dialed on the hot side, the cold side, I have variables I have a lot of control over. Then what that does is allows you to just let the ingredients kind of do their thing, right? And 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 when you're looking at a lot of the historical beers that you've made throughout your, your homebrewing journey and being an author, I think that that's really, really important because... For example, you know, it's things like when when I, I think in our last conversation we were talking about your 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 the 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 guile beers, the Cornish beers that you you redid, right? And one of the things that you had mentioned to me was I I I, I always think they're going to be using these these British style hops. It's a lot of Goldings and all this, but a lot of times they were using things like 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 American hops were coming over because that was what they were getting agriculturally at the time. And you would think, and so what you normally assume like, Hey, they're using fuggles. They weren't, they were using things like cluster. And so it's kind of unique in the fact that, that if you're using these different ingredients, as long as your process is dialed, you can kind of really let the, the different ingredients that they were using in those times really stand out and make a beer that, it may not be exactly the same, but pretty close, right? Yeah. Um, and what you've just described is really the uh, the rub, if you like. Uh, no hop pun intended. Uh, <laughs> because at different eras, different things happen, both in, uh, in Australia and in the UK. So in in Australia in the 1920s, post the Great War, a great deal of protectionism, uh, and uh, they the 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 brewers as a uh, as an organisation said that they would use 80% local hops and 20% imported. Now this is the period of uh, prohibition in the U.S. And uh, a, a lot of uh, American hops would have been really cheap. And they were really cheap because I've seen the, the ledgers where... And cheap for um, a production brewery, cheap and decent quality is probably a good combination. So, so you do get uh, external constraints. So in the, in the UK, they had a similar, uh, a similar issue in that the hop farmers were all going bust. And they also had uh, a protectionism-type scheme. And and those schemes fundamentally changed the flavours of the beers 
in those periods. So if we're if we're in the early 20th century, we've got a lot of protectionism around the world. We've got probably oversupply of hops, uh, which would influence the uh, the beers that were being brewed. In the late, just going backwards a bit, in the in the late uh, 19th century, uh, hops are very much a commodity uh, from wherever. Uh, I've seen logs with. Um, uh, Bavarian hops used uh, quite often in British brewing and also in Australian brewing. Uh, Californians crop up lots of times, which you could infer would be cluster. However, that may or may not be quite correct because the brewing books tend to use the name of the hop factor or the uh, hop supplier, or possibly the grower, and not so much the variety. And whilst cluster was the predominant variety, it wasn't the only variety grown in the US. Uh, Fuggle was grown, uh, and also um, uh, Sartz, which had, which had come, uh, which they called Bohemians, which is where it's from bohemia so different areas different things uh it does mean that uh you can you can use different combinations of what we would now call traditional hops uh in your beers and they tend not to be the citra mosaic dot 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 that are currently all over the place and a sort of lead leading to a homogenization of, of beer flavor which is unfortunately somewhat boring yeah i think uh it, don't get me wrong i i like a good a well-made juicy ipa i think that's just kind of the trend right now but i i think homogenization is a is a great word for it right you walk into a brewery in the united states right now and they're basically going to show you the five different hazy ipas that they're selling right and really no other beers are really flying off the shelves it's kind of funny how 20 years ago it was all water beer budweiser right which i'm sure the american breweries still sell a ton of but in, in the end it it, it breweries have to sell what sells right and that's kind of what they get into and then they all kind of become the same and then beer tastes and trends change based on what their customers are drinking and what they're buying right and so yeah i i would agree that there's definitely a lot of beers right now that are very much the same so for me and at least my group of friends what we do now is we're just I, I switch up my winter beers to my summer beers and try to get something a little bit different based on the time of year just because of all that, right? And and to try to not sit there. I like craft beer. I don't necessarily want to drink the same type of beer all the time. And I feel like that's kind of the, the no matter where you go, that's what, what's kind of happening with the beer world in general. Yeah, it's, it's, um, it's what you've described is if you went to a, um, a craft brewery in Australia, uh, you might get a few outlier beers that are a bit different, but they're mostly uh, hazy, uh, yeah. which is not particularly a style as such that I enjoy. I'm, I I like something that's a bit more like beer. Yeah. Uh, 
particularly bitter beer because that to me was what it is. And I, I have noticed in the in the UK, you 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 are seeing a lot of the golden style style of ale uh, are using American hops, and uh, I've brewed uh, English type golden ales uh, with um, with Belma, which is a, a US hop, which has got quite a distinctive flavour. But I, I tend to steer away from the. Uh, uh, the current ones, let's say the yeah. the current trendy Galaxy, ones. Citra, I don't mind. I don't mind Galaxy. Kind of uh, yeah, yeah. Galaxy's all right. However, my story with Galaxy is that I uh, many years ago when it first came out, I uh, I brewed a smash beer with that, and I hadn't really taken into account the potency of Galaxy, and it took about three months conditioning in the keg to calm down enough to actually make it drinkable (laughs) Uh, it's some powerful stuff and 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 but also lots of that kind of citrusy stone fruity it could get pretty juicy right like that's if you're if you're especially using it for those types of things you know back Mm. to your tech stack a bit on on the cold side right you you know, when we talk about your brew pilots at the beginning, you know, this is managing your fermentation, right? And it's also giving you a lot of data, right? And and how are you using that data when you're making some of the styles that you make? So let's say you're recreating a historic style of beer. They talk about a fermentation schedule. Are you trying to mimic that fermentation schedule or are you trying to just get close? What, what, what's your, what's your approach to that? And how do you use the technology to kind of mimic those things? Right. That's a biggie. Um, most of the industrial processes don't translate well to a 20 liter, five gallon batch size. Uh, what I have tried to do is to make sure I have picked a yeast strain uh, that is going to get to the right sort of terminal gravity that the historic beer had. Uh, I did. I'm not a lager person, but I, I manfully uh, did a uh, a recreation recipe from 1898, uh, culled from a, a number of sources. Uh, one of which was a, a an analytical. Uh, I, I, I guess it was more like an endorsement in the uh, in the medical press about how um, uh, how nutritious this and uh, non-alcoholic this beer was. It was non-alcoholic in in relative terms to Australian beers of the period uh, because it was only about four percent, and its final gravity was around ten twenty from this analysis. Now, that poses a a really big challenge today with modern malts, and it took... uh, I've done it twice now. Uh, The second one, I seem to have got there, but I had to change the process. Uh, uh, The the mash temperature would would seem to be insanely high. Uh, They used to do uh, decoction mashing, which... Uh, will give you a, a level of unfermentables, and I put it in the uh, in the fermenter, and um, 
fermented it out. I think I used um, S189, something like that. And because it was the least attenuative yeast that I could find uh, and managed, managed the fermentation with the brew pile S. The way I managed the fermentation is uh, the actual temperature monitoring and the steps you can you can program that into the brew pile s so you could go uh pitch it i don't know a bit warm seven for a lager say uh, pitch about 17 uh drop it down to uh to 10 after you know half a day uh and then let it ferment and then go up for a diacetyl rest and you can program that all into the the brew pile s where I monitor and where I do my uh, recipe development is in Brewfather, and you can you can send your your data from Brewpilus and the eye spindle uh, into Brewfather, and Brewfather is where in effect all my logging takes place because it's got the great. I, I think you're familiar with Brewfather, aren't you? Oh yeah, and and yeah. I love the the logging how it'll take the data from your brew pilus or your 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 ice spindle or tilt hydrometer, and it brings all that data in and charts it all out and attaches it to your recipe, right? And when we think about recreating, right, and not just recreating a, a different recipe, but like recreating the same beer that you've made before and trying to be consistent, which as you know, is the hardest thing to do as a brewer. It's, I, I think it's easy to make good beer. It's hard to make a good beer 10 times. Right. And so that is really where I think Brewfather shines over pretty much any other software. Yeah. I, I've, and, and Thomas is just so responsive to, to questions. Uh, it, and, Recipe development, if we talked about sort of trying to standardize the general process, which I, I'm reasonably comfortable with, but when you've got a fermentation where you're trying to get a very high terminal gravity, uh, it does take a couple of goes, and you need to know what you did before so that you can change it to see whether perhaps the yeast is should be different, um, uh, whether your mash should be different, um, but one of the one of the things that I, I, I guess it's more of an uh, an irritation than an annoyance. You you can have a uh, a very small OLED uh, screen with the brew pilus, which is oh, in old money is probably about an inch, so it is quite small and. Um, uh, all my stuff is in the garage, and I I tried before Christmas to uh, integrate a um, a TFT display, uh, 2.8 inches. It's funny in a metric world that you still get inches all over the place, and I, I think there's a country that might be responsible for that, but I, I can't quite bring them to mind. Anyway. <laughs> The, I um, wish we were on the metric system too. It's just I'll I'll, I'll stay. I'll just say that. <laughs> yeah. So I I got hold of yeah, because of this this wonderful thing called GitHub and people that put stuff up there because they're just interested in programming or 
brewing or whatever. Uh, so I downloaded a version from um, Vito Tai's uh, brew pilus, and uh, I was using uh, um, Microsoft. Uh, I think it's Microsoft now. The um, Visual Source Code. Uh, uh, Visual Studio. That's uh, the, Visual, the, Visual the, Studio. That's it. Yeah. With, yep, to, with the, pl- the programming IDE is what that is. Yep. Yeah. With with Platform IO. All of these things I had, you know, the, because I just wanted to fiddle around the edges, uh, that was good enough for me. But what I wanted was to actually get the data onto this 2.8, uh, 320 by 240 pixel colored color display so that when I went out to the garage, I could just look at it. I didn't have to have my phone in my pocket. Uh, I didn't want to want to have to you know log into something uh, if i want to see the the full picture then i just you know on the on the ipad or whatever you can look at brew father so i wanted something that would show me the state of play in the garage when i walked out there that was bigger than the little oled and i couldn't grasp or understand because i'm not a programmer uh how to modify uh the existing code and then I had this idea. And the internet is is disparaged, really. But if you if you spent a long time researching for historical stuff, the techniques that you use for researching are equally applicable to finding other things. So after YouTubing and uh, looking at snippets of code and... I built something called FirmWatch. And FirmWatch is an 8266 with a screen. It takes, um, and we're going to go full on geek now, MQTT. It takes an MQTT stream from that's pushed out from BrewPyLess. And then my adventurous thing was I didn't know anything about APIs till about January this year and I played with the weather app and that had an API open weather and I thought oh okay and Brewfather has an API and I had a bit of correspondence with Thomas because I'm I don't know what I'm doing uh, and he pointed me in the right direction so you can actually uh, send a get request to the Brewfather API, and it will send you back the information about the brew. Uh, the tricky thing was that you needed to um, do a two-shot process. You had to uh, first get the batch details, and then you'd get a batch ID. And once you had the batch ID, you could then do another request, and it would give you the latest readings. And the latest readings include all the ice spindle stuff so i was able to uh, integrate into my display device uh, information from brewfather information from brewpyless and then i did some calculations well why not i i decided that um, apparent attenuation would be an an interesting thing to display and i had 
was able to get the data from from Brewfather, and I had the current eye spindle uh, present gravity. And um, after four months of messing about, uh, about a week ago, I um, I published it on GitHub. <laughs> so there you go. That's so awesome, it's not, Peter. It, it's it's not impossible to do these things, but it does take time and. Boy, was it a learning curve, and I'm not I'm not done yet. I'm uh, I'm still trying a couple of things, uh, which will perhaps be interesting because the iSpindle software uh, works very well, but there's this um, this guy in Sweden has um, also on GitHub uh, has something called Gravity Mon, where you replace the uh, the firmware on iSpindle hardware, and it gives you the the ability to not just send one stream of data to BrewPyLess or to BrewFather, but it's got MQTT data that you can get at as well. So it struck me that that's an opportunity to explore. So I have downloaded his software onto my trusty uh test eye spindle and i'm playing with that at the moment uh is there is there something i could be doing on my time time elsewhere yes i should be writing more chapters in my book but i'm not I'm <laughs> playing with i'm playing with with code that i don't fully understand yeah and well and that's kind of the thing about rabbit holes right is uh you start down one you're like yeah i have this problem and i just want to solve this one and that's kind of the cool thing about open source software is that you have APIs you can access, right? So I, I work in tech. That is actually what I do for a job. I'm in tech sales. So I, I talk to people. I actually sell to restaurants and breweries. And so I, I talk to people all the time about, you know, technologies, APIs, and things like that uh, pretty much on the daily. And a lot of private companies actually guard those APIs because they don't want you to have access to them without paying, Right. And one mm. of the cool things about the homebrewing world is that a lot of the software you're talking about, BrewPyLess, the iSpindle, the, the, uh, uh, the, the, the different uh, softwares that you're, you're listing out here. BrewFather, though, it is private software. He's, he's pretty open with the data, right? He, he's like, hey, yeah, if you want it, you get it. But it is a pay-for product, right? And to get well, access yeah, to and, that, you, you got to pay 20 the, bucks a year. It's not super expensive. Yeah, it, but, it's, yeah. it's the best value uh, of, of all the things value. I subscribe to, it's the best value going around, and I highly yeah. recommend it. Yeah, definitely. I mean, for $19 a year, you get a lot, right? And so in the end, what these do and what the what the homebrewing world kind of does is it gives you the this access to things that normally are going to be closed off, right? Um, and I'll give you an example. I have this, this really amazing chess board. Uh, I'm very into chess as well. I like to play chess. And I have this chess board that's like, it connects to like chess.com and it connects to LeChess, which are uh, websites that you can play to people on the internet. And I can actually play on a physical chess board against you, Peter, who's playing on your computer, right? That's kind of the idea over the internet. And the thing I, 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 the one thing that I look at this chess board that I have, I won't name the brand, is that I have to use their proprietary app to get it to connect to other things, which is fine. But I'd really love to just have the open source data and kind of do what I want with it, right? Because there's some features missing that I'd like to have. And when you get into proprietary stuff, you're kind of limited. Whereas 
with these open source projects, if you know a little bit about what you're doing, you have a problem to solve, you can hop into some forums and you can kind of get there. I mean, in all reality, I think you've got one of the few instances where you can walk in without having to have a phone or a dedicated laptop, but you've basically got a screen sitting there that is 100% dedicated to your home brewery and, ha and has all the charts and graphs plotted out in, in, a, in a way that makes sense to your brain, right? And, and that's the problem you solved, right? Yeah, I, as, as we started out, you probably got the impression uh, I like having the control over the whole thing. And the open yep. source software, uh, whilst not necessarily perfect, does give you the opportunity to tweak it to suit yourself. And I've sort of taken that to the logical extension of actually writing how, how to do it, and I've put it up on YouTube. Because a lot of the things I found you would get a snippet of information because somebody's trying to solve a particular issue. However, nobody actually puts the whole thing together in the form of uh, a logical step-by-step -step process as to how you actually make the thing work, Yep. which is uploading the firmware, uh, the fact that you've got to make a, a base 64 key to access Brewfather, uh, these things were all challenges. Uh, I I spent best part of a day because I had not read, I'd not the documentation when I reread it was perfectly clear. When I first read it, I did not understand the significance of what it said. It's classic. You need to do it. You need to fail. You need to do it again. And I finally cracked it. I'd left the colon out between the. <laughs> the API key and the rest of it. And once I did that, it was a eureka moment. Uh, my wife, um, I, I come out bouncing out of the office that I'd solved something, <laughs> and she's going, yeah, okay. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, my wife gives me that eye roll as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Eye roll is exactly what it is, yes. Yeah. Now, now, Peter, you, you know, obviously – you you've you've written a couple of great books you're you're using this technology to kind of do this you know i i know that you're probably working on another book at some point right you know what what's the what's the next big thing in brewing you want to tackle well i i've um i've been distracted um a bit well quite a lot actually with with this uh, technological stuff of recent times but i I guess I've, uh, during the various lockdowns, uh, so over the last two years, I've got about five chapters worth, which will hopefully uh, become a prequel to my other Australian books, uh, Bronze Brews and Six O'Clock Brews. Uh, I've... I've found more information. I haven't found too, many, too much information about uh, beers to recreate, but I perhaps can uh, resolve some of the marketing... Uh, that's the best way to explain. Uh, marketing myths that have been perpetuated uh, about beers in Australia... 
by actually having solid evidence of and and research as to why what people say is true is not actually true. <laughs> I, I, is that polite I'm, enough? No, that's great. I mean, look, I, I you know, I, I deal with marketing departments at work as well. And trust me, uh, you know, marketing, marketing definitely plays a huge part into basically perpetuating myths that they the story that they want to tell in the in the version of reality that they want to be right and so and and, and it, it, it usually it usually starts out with a nugget of truth yep uh, exactly and and then it gets inverted commas improved upon uh so yeah i i have um uh, possibly three or four different strands of uh or themes, if you like, for for the next book, and I'm I'm going to go to Canberra next month to the National Library, and uh, have a rummage in some of the archives there, which I've uh, not been able to do <coughs> because of the uh, the various COVID restrictions. Yeah, well, you know, I obviously I, I've. I, I have read all your books, and I will say that uh, they've been passed. My, the the copies that I've bought have now been passed around through my entire homebrew club. So uh, huge fan of, of your work and some of the beer recipes that that you've 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 drummed up. So uh, so yeah. Just let me get this clear: you you've been acting as a library instead of people buying my book with extra copies. Uh, Is you this know, what you're saying? You know, uh, <laughs> It's kind of one of those things. I bring it to the club, and somebody's like, "Oh, I want to check out that book," and then it gets passed around. The good news is that if they like it, they always tend to buy it. So that that is a good. Oh, that's good. That's good. Uh, yeah, yeah. Because if it ends up being the kind of book down someone's alley, which like I'll I'll use uh, Guile Brews as an example, right? You've got to be into British styles, right? Like that's just the the kind of book that it is. And uh, I have a few people in my homebrew club that love those British styles. I did a I, I did a loaner out to you know we've talked about Jim on the show before I did a loaner out to him and you know what Jim now has the book himself right and and yep. it's that he, those are his style he the dude only makes Belgian and British styles period that's it that's his mo right so yeah it's, uh, yeah. yeah right down right down his alleys uh, and he does also German lagers so let's get that out of the way too he does that so it, to me it, it's something where uh, when I look at at your your the history that you've pulled up and 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 your books i look at them as something where you know you you kind of are looking at old brew logs you're kind of telling the story from beer from a recipe perspective and not a marketing perspective and so to me that that's really what gets down to me in the homebrewer sense of of why i i enjoy that style of book because like you said um you, you don't want, I mean, how many times have we heard the IPA story about it being on a boat? So with enough hops to get it to India, blah, blah, blah. You know, is any of that true? Who knows, right? But the fact is, is that there's probably a kernel of truth in there. Who knows if that's really a true story, right? And and that's, there's, there's a ton of that in the beer world. Yeah. And um, uh, at an unnamed archive that I've, I've been to in Australia, uh, I've found a room full of uh, what the various marketing departments thought was important, which didn't include any brewing journals or logs at all. <laughs> nope. Talks about uh, obviously you know, the been, lifestyle. 
<laughs> they had obviously been chucked in the skip at some stage during one of the numerous takeovers. So, yeah, uh, it's, exactly. it's disappointing. But there's, an, there's hidden stuff out there somewhere. Uh, people that have worked in breweries, uh, their father, grandfather, great-grandfather might have a diary. The diary's got what they did day by day, and, and those... Those books are absolute gold if you can come across one. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. And and to be honest, those are also the kind of things that, that I, I that that's what intrigues me about process. What are they doing on the daily? What's the reality of the world around in that time and why they had to make the choices they made? Like those are, that's what's important to me in beer history, right? Not necessarily the stories they want to tell us to sell more beer because, you know, we get plenty of that today. <laughs> yeah, and and the and the monotony of life in a production brewery, uh, in the tooth books, uh, the mashing schedule, same as usual. Next page, same as usual. Uh, yep. They were they were churning the same beer out, and you know at the beginning of the book was the mashing schedule, and that's what they did every day. Yep, that's yeah. that's that that's. You know, it's not the most glamorous thing, but man, it does make a fun beverage, doesn't it? <laughs> when, when, when done properly, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> well, Peter, I, I want to thank you for coming on Homebrewing DIY. I, I excited to kind of see uh, w- what you've been doing with your tech stack. It's it's super cool to see, you know, even somebody who's making all these historical styles, right? You're still utilizing the technology to get that consistent beer. Uh, out there and and even diving into some coding i love it um a couple questions for you you know if you could do me a favor and send me over a link to that youtube video that you made um love to share that with uh, some of our listeners and also i will put links to 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 peter's uh, uh he, he self-publishes these books right and so I'll, I'll get a link over to triton books for you guys so that you can check out some of the the books that peter's written they're they're great books and the good news is that because they're self-published if you buy these books they, they're directly supporting peter and 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 what he the work he's doing in homebrewing and in beer history so um yeah thanks for coming on homebrewing diy peter no it's been great thanks a lot like to thank peter for coming on the show it was a great conversation great to see some of the cool work he's doing with his tech stack and applying it to making historical beers such a cool conversation and i just want to thank peter for the time and so head on over to homebrewingdiy.beer there's a list of links to all of his books and and to learn about peter and some of the projects he's working on you can also follow us on all of our socials. You can find us at Homebrewing DIY. We're on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, all the things. I even have a TikTok that I haven't posted to in probably a year, but it does exist. Follow us there. Maybe I'll start posting there too. Well, that's it for this week. I'll talk to you next week on Homebrewing DIY. <laughs>